We live in a scary world, a world that has quickly become a whole lot scarier than it used to be. You're a young Aussie working in London, enjoying a night out, and you are stabbed to death. Why? Well, because you live in the West, the decadent West that's full of infidels like you. But this murderous hatred is being directed more and more, not just against the Western world, but against Christians in just about every part of the world. And it isn't coming just from Muslims, but from militant Hindus and Buddhists and from militant atheists and Marxists and many other people as well. And even in good old Oz, our own much more stable and less violent society, there's an increasing tendency for a whole range of people, from comedians to academics, to treat Christian beliefs with scorn and contempt and even outrage. Well, in that kind of a world, it's very tempting to bail out, to put up the shutters, to retreat behind closed doors, which is exactly what Jesus' disciples had done. And then something absolutely amazing happened something that made it clear to them that hiding from the world was not an option, something that changed everything, that began a revolution that has not stopped, something that's meant to change our world as well as theirs. So we're going to go back there to see what happened And then we're going to come back here to see how that is meant to grip us and change us. So into the locked room, verse 19. Late on that first day, the first Easter Sunday, the doors were locked where the disciples were because of their fear of the Jewish authorities. So there are the disciples and there is something else as well. You can almost smell and taste it. Fear. These men are scared stiff, terrified that the same authorities who had just executed Jesus were planning to crush and eliminate his movement by coming after them as well. And there's something else in the room too, mixed up with their fear. These men are totally ashamed of what their fear had already made them do. They are guilty of abandoning Jesus despite all of their strenuous protesting promises 
that they would be loyal to him no matter what. The men in this room are pretty well broken, crippled by fear and failure and guilt and shame. And then suddenly, there is Jesus in the middle of the room with them. Middle of verse 19. Jesus came and stood in their midst. We're going to focus primarily on what happens at that point. Jesus speaks to them. He shows them his hands and his side and then he speaks to them again. So we'll be looking mostly at the end of verse 19 through to the end of verse 21. And we need to try and work out what it means. If you're one of those people who likes to catch up on your sleep during the sermon, well, let me tell you what we're going to learn so that you won't miss everything when you wake up during the next song. We're we're going to discover that the words of Jesus and the wounds of Jesus go together. And his wounds explain his words. And his words and wounds together give us some of the most important things we need to know. So that if we're going to stay on course and not lose our way as Christians, we must remember these words and we must remember his wounds. So here is Jesus suddenly present in the midst of the room and what does he do? Well, he says to them, peace to you. A word of greeting. Then he shows them his hands and his side and then he speaks a word of sending. So let's have a look at what we've got. The words with which Jesus begins are the normal greeting that everyone in that society would use. And it's still the normal greeting in all Arabic-speaking countries. So you greet each other by saying, Salam, peace. Then Jesus shows them his hands and his side, and that makes it unmistakably clear that it really is Jesus. The Jesus who was nailed to the cross and pierced by the soldier's spear. So there's no surprise at all that the disciples are thrilled to see him, but they would have been very surprised at what happened next because verse 21, he greeted them again. You don't walk into a room and say, Hi! Hi! Because most people present would get the idea that you think they're deaf mutes. 
or that something else is wrong with them. But it's clear when you think about it that the fact that Jesus repeats the greeting means that it isn't a greeting. What he's speaking is not words of greeting but words of gifting. He's giving them something and the gift is peace. Well, what peace? Well, remember what happens. He says, peace to you. He shows them his hands and side and then says again, peace to you. The words tell us what the gift is. The wounds tell us how much it cost him to give us a gift of peace. So what kind of peace does he mean? Is it the peace of being calm and tranquil? Well, if that's what you want, you could try camping in a cemetery. There's a great deal of peace and quiet to be had there. But it's fairly obvious that Jesus did not die on the cross in order to put the manufacturers of tranquilizers out of business. He's not giving them the peace of tranquility. Then what does he mean by peace? He had in fact already sent it to them earlier that day when he met Mary Magdalene in the garden next to the tomb where he had been buried and gave her a message for these men and he said to her, go and tell my brothers then the message. Can you imagine the impact of that word in that room? It would have gone off like a hand grenade. My brothers... In other words, Jesus had already made it clear to them, despite their terrible failure, which shamed them and made them deeply afraid, his message was, it's okay, it will not be held against you. I have forgiven you. It's the peace of pardon, of being Reconciled of being given a restored relationship when I have wrecked it and ruined it. But there's more than that. Forgiveness is wonderful, but it's by no means the whole gift because the peace that Jesus is giving them is also the peace of being welcome, included, loved, accepted in the family instead of being shut out as they should be. So that's where the revolution began. The gift of a peace which meant pardon and welcome being forgiven and being accepted and included. And 
That made enormous changes. You turn over a page or two to the first few chapters of the book of Acts and it's very hard indeed to recognise those men in the first chapters of Acts as being the same group of broken failures that we see in this locked room. It changed them dramatically and it's meant to. Have you received this gift? Do you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you making a terrible mistake trying to have peace with God by being religious? He said, peace to you. Remember the words, he's giving a gift, not a prize, for being good at religion. He showed them his wounds. The peace that he is giving them has been secured by him and what he did on the cross. Well, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, yes, I know he needs to say that just in case there's anyone here who hasn't started yet. But gosh, it's a long time ago since I accepted that gift and it's not news, it's pretty basic, pretty obvious. I wonder if you are in danger of taking for granted a gift that cost this much well he has spoken the word of gifting he's made it clear that he has won it for them at terrible cost to himself so that it's free to them and then he speaks a word of sending and Showing them his wounds is connected with both sets of words. And in order to understand what he means by saying to them, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, the second half of verse 21, we're going to ask two questions that need to be asked. Where and why? Where is he sending them? He doesn't actually say. He just says, I'm sending you. He doesn't need to tell them because they've already heard the answer. They listen to him praying, a prayer that's recorded in chapter 17. And in verse 18, they heard Jesus say this to the Father, as you sent me into the world... I send them into the world. Where are they now? Well, they're in a locked room hiding from the world. But Jesus is now sending them out into that world. He expects them to stop huddling together like frightened rabbits finding security in their little burrow. He wants them to unlock the doors and head out 
into that scary, dangerous world. But that means putting their lives at risk. Look what it did to him. So why? Why is he sending them into danger? Why must they leave this hiding place and head out into the world? And the answer is in the words he speaks. Listen to it again and see if you get the point. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. As. As. His mission, his sending, is the model for theirs. So why did the Father send him? And why did he go? And the answer's in the most famous verse in this Gospel. It's a four-letter word. Probably the best word in the English language. L-O-V-E. God loved the world. That's why he sent his son and that's why our Lord Jesus came willingly. And how great was his love for the world? This much. His wounds tell us the answer. This is how much I have loved the world. But his wounds tell us something else, something that is truly appalling. They not only tell us how much he loved the world, they also tell us how much the world hated him. But he knew that. He knew that that's what he was in for because he had told them in chapter 15. Do have a look at that passage later, starting in verse 18 where Jesus makes it clear that he knows that the world hates him and cannot wait to express that hatred as much as possible. So the world did not hold back from hating and hurting him as much as it possibly could, but he did not hold back from loving it to the max. And the same wounds that show us how much he loved the world show us how much the world hated him. So why go? Why go into a world that responded to such wonderful love with such terrible hatred? Why not leave it to stew in its own juices and get what it deserves? And the answer's obvious. It's the same four-letter word. Just as the Father expressed his love for the world by sending his Son into it, so our Lord Jesus expresses his love for the world by sending his brothers into it. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. But what's the point? What hope is there that their going into that world will do any good? 
Jesus has already warned them in the chapter 15 passage that the world won't treat them any better than it treated him. So why bother? Well, remember the wounds. What do they tell us? What do we learn from his scars? Well, we've just said it tells us how much the world hated him. Yes, true, but how much? Well, as much as it could. It actually saved for him the worst, most humiliating, most degrading, most shameful, most cruel, most violent form of execution it had in its weaponry. It crucified him. Yes, but... The world threw everything it had at him. It held nothing back because it was determined to destroy him. All of its cruelty, all of its spiteful and vindictive worst, all of its weapons and all of its powers, and it has lost. The Jesus who is showing them his wounds is the winner. The world and all of its evil powers, including even death itself, has been beaten. The person who is standing in the middle of that room, giving them peace and sending them into the world, is the victim who is now the victor, the crucified conqueror. So what do his wounds tell his brothers as he sends them into the world? Well, two things that they must never forget. Number one, the world is a dangerous place, but they could not possibly be more secure because the scarred sovereign has them in his grasp and he will not let go of them. If the world could not beat him, then it certainly cannot beat them. And the second reason, the second fundamental, crucial, unforgettable point, his wounds show them. The biggest reason they have for going into the world is love for him. Yes, like him, they go out into the world out of love for the world, the evil world, the lost world, and the whole world, all of its peoples. And when they go, yes, they will do it for them, but most of all they will do it for him. Why? Because his wounds mean not only that he is the saviour of the world and its only saviour, but the wounded Jesus who stands in their midst is also the ruler of the world and its only ruler. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because the Father has now given all authority in heaven and on earth to him, the whole world is his. So now the disciples are his apostles, sent out into the world to claim it for him, to plant the flag of the gospel in every people and nation so as to bring all people everywhere under the loving and saving rule of the Lord Jesus, so that everyone everywhere will do what Thomas did, saying with awe and with joy, you are my Lord and my God. And he's not sending them out expecting them to rely on their own resources. It's pretty obvious that these men have no resources to rely on. So what does he do? Verse 22, he gives them the gift of his spirit to enable them, to direct them, to work with them. Well, now it's time to come back here a long way from that locked room in Jerusalem on the first Easter Sunday. Or is it? Is it a long way? It's the same scary world they lived in, full of threats and dangers, especially for those who belong to the Lord Jesus. So we are tempted to do just what they did, to hide to lock the doors and try and shut the scary world out, but that is not an option for us any more than it was for them. Because the same crucified conqueror who was there in their midst then is here in our midst now. And no, we can't see him as they did on that occasion, although subsequently they didn't see him either. But we know he is here because he promised that he would be. Where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And the crunch point is the same for us as it was for them. We must remember his words and we must remember his wounds. For us too, there is the gift of peace, the peace of being forgiven and completely accepted, the peace of being included in the family and being completely secure. And we will never take that for granted so long as we remember the wounds. This wonderful peace comes free to us but only because it came at terrible cost to him. And for us too, there is the word of commission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And as we remember the words and remember the wounds, eventually it becomes very clear that there is one big question every one of us must be asking. 
How can I make my life count most for the sake of Jesus, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me? One question that we all must ask and keep asking, and there are many, many right answers. For some of us, the right answer will be staying in our trade or profession and using it to bring honour to Jesus. For some of us, like Brittany in the story you'll hear in a little while, it will mean leaving a profession to take on something radically different. For some of us, the right answer will be getting up from our desk and going to the office next door or opening the gate and going to visit the next door neighbour for the sake of Jesus. And for some of us, the right answer will mean going to the other end of the world for the sake of Jesus. And yes, we'll be doing it for them because they are lost forever without him, But above all, we will be doing it for him. So will it mean losses and sacrifices? Probably. Will it mean giving up career and financial security? Well, it might. Will it mean giving up the prospect of being married and having children? Possibly. But even if it does mean losses and sacrifices of that kind, can we honestly remember these wounds and make a big deal of our little losses? Or can we think that the person who wore these wounds for us would leave us in a situation where the losses were more than we could bear? and not fill our lives with wonderfully good things as well? Will it mean taking risks and facing dangers? Quite possibly. But why would we hold back from taking some knocks and wearing some scars for him when we remember his wounds? How could we be more secure in life and in death than to be held in the grip of the scarred sovereign? So, global gospel focus. What should be our focus? Global, our desperately lost and terribly needy world? Yes, Gospel, God's magnificent answer to the world's deepest needs? Yes and no. Neither the globe nor the gospel must be the focus. The focus must be our Lord Jesus Christ himself. The globe is his. The gospel is his. He is the reason for our living and perhaps also for our dying. 
Why wouldn't we put everything we've got into winning the world for him? Next door or at the end of the world? Why would we hold back when the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me?